If someone were to ask you about some of the greatest spiritual dangers, the greatest dangers to your soul, uh, the things that are most likely to make you shipwreck your faith, what kind of things might come to mind? For most of us, probably things like sexual immorality, pornography, lust, pride, uh, things of that nature. Now, one thing that would probably end up on the list, but maybe further down than it ought to be, is something that shows up again and again and again in Jesus' ministry, something he warns against repeatedly. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus warns us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6.10, for example, tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In Hebrews 13.5, we read, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, this isn't just a new covenant or a New Testament concept. If you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that even the preacher Solomon warning us that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. One of the most consistent warnings throughout scripture is, you might say it's in bright neon letters across the entire New and Old Testament, is simply, do not love money. Beware of the love of money, that the riches of this world are a temptation that are at least as dangerous to your soul as things like internet pornography, sexual temptation, pride, and the rest of the list that might jump into our mind more and more or more readily. However, the scriptures also, on the <laughs> seemingly in the same breath, speak extraordinarily positively about wealth and about money. For example, Proverbs 13:22 tells us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. We read uh, things like Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We read in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. We can go over and over through the pages of the scriptures and we'll find as well that money is something that God gives as a blessing to his people. And so how do we understand this gift? How do we understand both the danger and be aware of that and the blessing that comes with wealth and money and space and things like that? Well, in this episode of Bright Hearth, that's exactly what we'll be talking about as we move into the office, as we move through the rooms of the house in this season. We've talked about food. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about the bedroom. We've talked about many different subjects, but one that's come up over and over again in our questions from our listeners is how do you deal with money? How do you deal with financial planning? So we're going to attempt to lay out theology of working with money and get pretty practical in this episode as we seek to recover the lost arts of homemaking and the productive Christian household in this season of Bright Hearth. Well, welcome back, listeners. I'm Brian Sauvet, and as always, I am joined by my lovely wife, Lexi, here at the Sauvet household, specifically in our bedroom, Cyril directly outside of the door, sleeping on a small mattress on the floor, because um, why is that, Lexi? Tell us more about that. He just sleeps wherever he can, uh, wherever he will sleep. These days, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a rough sleep stretch here. You know, Bright Hearth recording days often are the <laughs> days where we feel like certain trials maybe which would seem small to you as we describe them, but it's always seem to stack up on recording days in the late afternoon towards the evening. Today, what happened to, to us today, Lexi? My van died. <laughs> Her van died. Her and van died. we thought we put a down payment on another van a couple yeah. months ago, yeah. given the timeline of yep. six months. Financial planning. Which should be Prudence. coming up in September. <laughs> and when you called them today to check on it, they said, oh no, sometime in 2023. That's yeah. real cool. <laughs> so sometimes when you're thinking about financial, this is a perfect plan, this is a perfect segue. That's what I because was we're thinking. talking about money, we're talking about planning. <laughs> and here's the thing: I thought maybe I thought I was being particularly good this time around because 
you know, I looked at our old van, which has served us faithfully. It's an 06 Toyota Sienna, and uh, it looks like it's from 1906, not 2006. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the decals, man, it's just, you guys, I've had my wife driving around in what I might describe as a jank wagon for it's some horrible. time. It's horrible. It not really good. is horrible. It runs. It fits everybody. Air conditioning Michelle said every time I see you drive that, I just say, bless you. <laughs> yeah. Ble- ble- and, and being a good husband, you know, of course, or attempting to be, I thought, you know, I've, I've we're ready to get a vehicle. Uh, we're one kid away from not being able to fit in it anyway, and so I don't want to wait till last minute with all the shortages. So yeah. Well, we didn't even know this year. when you went to put on a down payment. You didn't even know it was going to be six months, let alone like over a year now. No, they said like oh two to six months. So yeah, I, I, we're 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 now past the eight passengers won't do it kind of stage here. We're like right on the edge, especially if we go anywhere. So. Yeah, you yeah, can't I thought, I'm take f- suitcases in a van with strollers plan. and all your kids. We're going to yeah. get it. We'll be ready to go. Yeah. And, you know, nope. So this is a particularly good moment for us to talk about financial <laughs> planning. And let's just start with that. You know, things don't always work out. No. <laughs> Sometimes fine. you've got to adapt. It's fine. And you've got to be thankful and work with what you've got. But today we are going to be talking as we move into the office of the house. There's so much here in the office that is really integral to the productivity, the productivity of the household, right? Because as we, as we think about the office, we're thinking about things like, how are you planning and executing a financial plan? How are you deploying the resources of the home to serve the people of the home and build the home and the things that we've you know been emphasizing in this season? How do you think through the organization of the calendar for the people? How do you think through all of these, you know, to to some of us, they're like second nature. Some of you are very type A, very planners, and you're like, yes, I have 16 apps that I use, and I have an Excel spreadsheet that has all of the lunches for the next three calendar school years laid out. I know what kind of sandwich my kids are going to eat on June 16th, 2025, and some of you, dear listeners are what we say, let's call it kindly, a fly-by-the-more-live-in-the-moment kind of people. And you don't know what's for lunch today, and maybe you need to work on that. So (laughs) we're going to be talking about the office here. But we're going to start in this first episode here in the office talking about money, talking about financial planning, talking about wealth, how we should be thinking about it. As you heard in that cold open, it, it, it it can seem almost like the scriptures are schizophrenic. And don't hear me, I don't actually think that. But some people, I think, read the Bible, maybe you get in your Bible reading plan, and you 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 see Abraham, and you're like, Abraham seems to be loaded. Right? Abraham is so wealthy that his household has an army of 318 trained soldiers. At, at one point, he goes and rescues Lot and engages in war. you know. And it just casually mentions that Abraham took up these 318 trained soldiers from his household and went and waged war. And, and you know what? It's pretty pricey to keep a standing army of 318 men. Um, we can't afford that quite yet. Obviously, if you see our van, you would say, <laughs> yes, you cannot afford that. We, we know you didn't have to tell us that. Abraham's clearly wealthy. In fact, he gets wealthier and wealthier through his life. By the end of his life, when he's paying for the, the grave of his wife, Sarah... Uh, a, a local man, this is actually the only land in the promised land he owns the title deed to, even though God promises him the whole land. It's the only part of the land he owns outright with a title deed in his lifetime is a grave that he purchases for an exorbitant amount of money. The man expected Abraham to haggle. Abraham didn't even haggle. He paid the equivalent of, you might say, like $2 million for a two-bedroom trailer house. Like that's Abraham was loaded. You come to the book of Job. You see Job, who's extraordinarily wealthy, then extraordinarily poor, and then by the end of his life, even more wealthy than he had been before. You see King David, who's obviously extraordinarily wealthy, king of a kingdom. You see his son Solomon with an income of 666 talents of gold a year, bringing in spices and precious metals and silks and textiles from afar. You go through the Old Testament, And you see a temple and a tabernacle adorned with gold and precious artwork. You see forests of cedar being turned into grand architecture. And and then, you know, you get to the Proverbs, and it talks all about, you get to Psalm 37, and it talks about the, the righteous being wealthy. In the Psalms, David even says he'd never seen a wealthy man's children beg for bread. And then, and this is jarring, maybe to you, 
you get to these other passages. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. They're to be rich in good works, to be generous and to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. We see over and over the New Testament, scriptures warn us, and the Old Testament as well, don't get me wrong, Ecclesiastes 5.10, you know, for example, that wealth is apparently tremendously dangerous. There's some sense in which it's tremendously dangerous. And so how do we think about that? How do we you know, not fall into a ditch on either side of the road when, we, when we're thinking about money. And I do think it's important, we're going to get into, and Lexi's going to talk more, and we're going to get interact here, but I think it's important from the beginning, you know, just to, to make sure from the foundations that we're understanding and thinking carefully about what wealth is, so that we can understand how to deal with it properly. And when you understand what it is and how it is supposed to relate to you, and to God, and to your neighbor, it becomes obvious why, first of all, it's such a danger. But then it also becomes obvious, um, even the reason it's such a danger is one of the reasons that it can be a powerful good. The first thing I think we need to understand about wealth, and, and Lexi, maybe you have some, some things to say here as well, but I would say the first thing we need to understand about wealth is the reason that it's so dangerous— and the reason that it's so dangerous is because um, for in, in, the, in the scriptures, we, we read that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So there's, there's something about every act that pleases God that is also, that says that every act that pleases God is also an act of faith, is one way we could put it. In other words, every act that pleases God is an act that trusts in God, in his promises and his character, that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he has promised, he will fulfill his word and his promises, and and though we don't necessarily walk by sight, we don't see all of those promises coming to pass yet, when we please God, a righteous act is an act of faith, it's one that pleases God. Now think about some of the things, uh, think about what sin is then. Sin is an act, uh, an act of faithlessness, or it's an act where we place our faith in an object which is not worthy of our faith. Now, you're probably already understanding where I'm going with this, but money, what is easier to put your faith in than money? Money can be turned into anything. Money can seem to be a shield and a reward. Money can seem to be a hedge against danger, a hedge against, you know, if, if, sometimes you just think if I had more money, all of our health would be solved. We could just eat the best food all the time. We could just, you know, control our... We could live in the perfect climate. We could do everything we needed to to protect our health. Um, money, money is one of those things that can be turned into anything in God's created world, seemingly. And so it's easy to worship because money and wealth almost represents every other aspect of the created order. Since it's easy for us to think, well, I can turn money into land. I can turn it into a Tesla. I can turn it into a new uh, minivan, I can turn it in, or a 15-passenger van, or a 12-passenger van that actually works and isn't falling apart in your driveway. Uh, you know, you can turn money into anything. And so money's tremendously, tremendously easy to trust in. You can see why there's such a straight line in the Scripture between the love of money and the and essentially uh, abandoning faith in Christ, because money can seem to promise what only God can deliver. So money is obviously a huge snare for us, and it's a danger. However, when you think about that, it also shows us why money is, is, has such potential to be a powerful good. Because think about it like this. Some of the most tempting dangers in our life, some of the greatest and most tempting sins for us to commit, are those things where sin has gotten in and perverted something that is powerfully good. So there's a reason that sexual sin probably comes to mind to you when you think about uh, what, is the, what are the greatest spiritual dangers to your soul. Well, sexual sin, why? Because sex is such a glorious good when it is doing and being what God created it to do. It literally creates life. Same with money and wealth. Well, God created this world that he said was very good, and money in a way represents all of the created things in this world that we might be able to get with that money. And so 
Money, obviously, can be a powerful good. Money can be used to support missionaries. Money can be used to plant churches. Money can be used to feed children. Money can be used to love your wife well. Money can be used to love your neighbor. Money can be used to bless your community. Money, I mean, the thing is, money, when it's at peace with God, when it's doing and being what God created it to do and be, when a wise man has money in his hand and the love of Christ in his heart, he can do glorious things with it, and it can be a, po- a powerful force for good. A godly man who leaves an inheritance to his children's children has done a good thing. He's done a glorious thing. And I think it's important to start there, because sometimes I think God's people can operate almost with like a like a like a fear of money to the extent that they actually just don't know how to use it and so they go through their life with kind of like a they're almost scared of getting money and they all they think the answer to money issues is always spend less or it's oh gag me <laughs> or it's oh man always like frugality is the only answer to the love of money, or when we talk about money issues, like maybe an episode like this, you might expect us to just say, like, here's 15 ways to save money. No. And it is important that we talk about being frugal and being responsible with our resources, but um, when we're talking about the whole topic of this season, we're talking about what kind of household? The productive household, right? A household that is actually bearing fruit and is pro- has even economic productivity, and so I give you all this preamble so that we can have at least a basic theological groundwork from understanding when we're talking about avoiding the love of money or handling money well, it's kind of like how if I'm counseling somebody who is misusing God's good gift of sex through pornography or lust or adultery or something like that, part of the answer that I'm going to give them isn't just going to be how to avoid the bad use of the thing, it's also going to be how can you pursue the good use of the thing? It's like the biblical answer for sexual sin isn't just stop sinning sexually, it's also delight in the the breasts of your wife and use sex properly and understand how to use the gift properly. Would you add anything there? Um, I think we need to talk about tithing. How 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 have we gone about prioritizing tithing? Should people tithe? Should they not tithe? <laughs> my my first answer, and there's disagreement, just theological disagreement amongst the church, amongst good sound theologians. Some people say in the New Testament, the tenth giving the tenth isn't an expectation or a command, and some people think it there is continuity there, and that the people of God are expected to give a tenth from their first fruits. I believe in a tithe, so I'll just come out and I'll just say we believe that. It remains an abiding command for the people of God under the new covenant to bring a tithe, a tenth of their first fruits, so off the top of their income into the to the household of faith. And that specifically I would give two reasons for that. The first reason is that I believe that the tithe was a creational ordinance that was established before the Mosaic Law. You see that with Abraham, for example. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It seemed to be a principle that existed before the law of Moses was even established. And there's more we could say. But secondly, I would say, I I believe Paul simply reasons and assumes that the tithe has ongoing validity in places like 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, where Paul's he's reasoning from the Old Testament Levitical order. He says, "'Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple?' and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. That would have been a system that was funded by the tithe and other offerings. And then he says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So while Paul foregoes this privilege several times, he says not to put a stumbling block in front of certain immature believers or new churches or where the gospel is going to a new community— he worked for his own, and that's great, and some, you know, a lot of pastors do that, bivocational, or don't take any pay from their church. But what Paul says is the norm would be that in the same way that the Levitical system was funded, so will the New Testament system be funded, which was just the tithe. And so I would, I would argue that it has ongoing validity. You've also commented before when the tithe has historically gone down, 
the government has swelled. Yeah, <laughs> so it's not tithe... like those needs necessarily went away that the church was meeting. It's now that yeah. the government was taking over those needs. And so if you start thinking, do I want the government actually doing those things or do I want that money in the hand of the church? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's a great point. So I think, and there, I think there's a few things to be said here that are important because you, you have churches that swell staffs doing pointless and stupid things. Like, I'm the arts pastor. I oversee finger painting. I stuff envelopes. Live I... <laughs> live interactive dancing during the service. I'm the pastor of interactive dancing. You know, or like I am the youth okay, I won't knock all the youth pastors necessarily, but um instead of like family integrated churches, the family all together, the people of God coming together for corporate worship, we've created a Sunday experience. It's quote just unquote. more of a business model. It's what it is. Yeah, where you're saying, come and let me give you spiritual goods and services that I dispense in exchange for your tithe. Well that's that's stupid. And so it is valid that a lot of people go, why would I tithe to support this clown show yeah. of like all of these programs and instead of the church being the worship of God and the care for the body. So, but if you have wise elders who are operating biblically, then the part of what the church funds do, as you see in the early church, the deacons were established to distribute food amongst the widows and amongst the poor. So when this when the tithe fails, the state swells. The average giving in most Protestant churches in the U.S. is probably under 2% of household income. So... Think of what the average church with wise elders could do with 5x of their budget. You know, one of the things that we do at our church is that we we've tried to make this connection more direct by we you know some of the ways that we think about our school is through tithing and and through the connection between member families coming together to support this this function in the school of Christian education. Um so I won't get into all the details there. But how do you do that practically? Well, I would say when we think about the first fruits, we're thinking this is something I do first. And so I do, and again, like I know the prosperity gospel hucksters have like bastardized a lot of these texts and used them to say, like, if you hit God hard enough with the stick of faith, he's like a pinata that dispenses Lamborghinis. I know people have abused these passages, but I mean, we, we do this one at our table sometimes. Give and it will be given back to you pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Yeah. The Bible says that. A good book that was helpful for me on this topic was The Good of Affluence, Seeking God in a Culture of Wealth. It's by Schneider, I think is how you say it. John R. Schneider. <clears throat> that was just a good example to see that, I remember him specifically talking about the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness they, they were wanting to go into the land that was rich, full of like rich food mm. and wealth. Yes. And so he was showing how even back then it was not normative for God's people to be homeless, to be yes. lacking in physical goods, to be lacking in financial means. And what didn't you read that book? Maybe this is not, I've always assumed it was along the same lines. I think it's a Gary DeMar book, Guilt Manipulators. Is yeah, that about it, finances or no? That is a tremendous book. I'm really glad you brought that up because I didn't even think about it, but it's called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, I think. It's by Gary DeMar, I believe. No, no, no. It's I'll by it David up. Chilton. I'm sorry. It's by David Chilton, and the late David Chilton. And he wrote this book as a response to this guy named Ronald Sider, That's I what believe. Sh Schneider wrote his in response oh, to him okay. as well. They he both was, probably same reasons. Yeah, Sider, Ronald Sider, I think was his name. He was very popular, S-I-D-E-R. He was very popular in, I think, maybe the 80s. Um, and he was writing a lot of, basically, the, you know, Christian love is socialism kind of yeah, garbage. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is they were responding to socialism. So if you want, like, a book-length treatment of productive Christians and how to think about wealth, I would highly recommend productive Christians in an age of guilt manipulators. And the good of affluence, to so just stop feeling guilty book. about... yeah. And, and George Grant also has a book. I think it's called Bringing in the Sheaves or something like that. I haven't read it yet. I really need to. George Grant's amazing. Yeah, George Grant is one of the greatest gifts to church who's, who's living right now. Uh, Giles Kirk Church, I think, is his church. And he's written some books on Christian 
poverty alleviation program. Bringing in the sheaves, replacing government welfare with biblical charity. Oh, yes. dear. I didn't know that was a book. I know. I, I've tried to Shoot. avoid letting Lexi know about some of these books. I love George so, Grant. <laughs> but um, we'll actually talk about this. Spending money on building uh, cultural wealth, like buying books, is a good thing. So don't knock it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we trust us. We do. Oh, yeah. The tithe. When the state, when the state, when the tithe fails, the state swells. So what you see happening in countries or in areas that were what we would almost think of as Christian nationalism now, but like where the state and the church were deeply entwined is that things like care for the poor were primarily done through private Christian activity. Mm-hmm. Things like hospital building. Christians yeah. did that. Things like caring for uh, the, the, the sick in, in the poor and the, the hungry. The church did that. Providing what, jobs for people. We think about that. Christians did that. Christians did that. <laughs> you know, not the church as an institution, but Christians in the church yes. did that. Yeah. So when when we're thinking about wealth, a lot of the time I think people think, I have this fixed pie of wealth. I make this much money and I cannot make more. And so how can I ever tithe? And it's like, do you not read the Bible? And I get I get worked up about this. Do you not read Luke 6.38? Give and it will be given back to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Do you not read the Bible when it says in the Proverbs that God gives, but Proverbs 10.22, I think I've read already in this episode, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow with it. Does God give us terrible bad things? Well, no. Apparently one of the blessings that God gives in this life can be riches, can be wealth. Well, and I think part of it too is when if you're organizing your budget around the tithe, God is already giving you the gift of providential wisdom to financially manage your money to tithe. And he will probably provide for more by also making you a good wise manager of your money in other ways. It's not like some magical thing where God just starts raining money from the clouds. It's that he, he has foreordained certain means to be provision for his people. And it's usually through ordinary means of wisdom. I was just reading Calvin on this this morning in the Mm -hmm. institutes. Yes. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one. It's like college funds. <laughs> if you live, if you aim to with all of your might take whether God gave you one talent or ten, whether you have a hundred and fifty IQ and like you're a genius and you're just everywhere you go, you are successful because you're just a genius and you're awesome. If that's you, praise the Lord, use it His glory. Or maybe you're a one talent person and you know it. You're like, look. I have 100 IQ. I'm dead average. I am not a great speaker. I'm not a great whatever. I don't care if you have one or 10. With all of your might, before the Lord, say, my treasure is going to be with the Lord. Like where your treasure is, your heart lies, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So put make Christ your treasure, and then anything he's put in your hand, strength, minutes, time, children, a wife, a job, Whatever strength and wisdom he's given you, with all of your might, aim to be productive with it for the sake, and this is key, of loving your people, your neighbor, loving your church, and glorifying God as you fulfill your duties. And some of those duties are God expects you, men particularly, God expects you to provide for your family. Yeah. Like Paul says, <clears throat> if you a man who doesn't provide for his family, 1 Timothy 5.8 especially members of his own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God does not give duties that he has then made correspondingly impossible to fulfill. So if you do that, and then if on if you, in doing that, you're like, we're going to tithe to our church. If we're not in a church that we believe we could tithe to, then you need to go get in a, you need to get in a church where you'd be confident to give them 10%. Do it. Like tr- just, yeah, and I mean, we've, trust we have, as a church, we've left organizations where we're like, we're no longer giving you money to build churches with oh, yeah. our as money a church, because we, we do that. not believe in what you're doing. As a church, we were part of a network where we were giving a tenth of our budget to help plant more like-minded churches. And we finally just said, we're we don't like want minded. more churches like this. <laughs> and so we left and we've used that money much more productively now. And it's like, get in a church where you can give cheerfully and joyfully. And I'm not saying you agree with every little thing that the pastor does or things. Like, don't be pedantic. Don't be a jerk. Don't think that you're manipulating the pastors with your tithe. Again, give freely. Give freely. 
and trust the Lord. And if you cannot do that in good conscience where you're at, you need to relocate. You need to find a, you need to find a way to be in better fellowship. And if you do that, I 100% believe that whether it looks like God providing enough for you and giving you a good attitude in the midst of trial, or God giving you abundance and, and you know you being the, the person that starts a business that ends up employing 20 people in your church, I because I believe the Bible, I believe that the normative pattern, not in every case, but the normative pattern is that God will bless you. And if you do that, I, I, I'm honestly, I just straightforwardly believe that in 98 cases out of 100, I think this is the normal pattern of God's world that he's built. I think there's ample biblical evidence that this is the normative pattern. I don't think this is any kind of prosperity mumbo-jumbo. I honestly just believe, because I read the Bible, that God intends to bless his people and that he will do that. And yes, this is my post-millennialism coming out. Yes, this is you know this is my whole theological covenantal framework coming out. Um, yeah, I was, where there's a I lot was of thinking about that today as I was thinking about this. I was like, wow, I had no idea the covenant theology had so much to no, do with it does. money. Uh, you know, especially if you're like covenant theology, high degree of continuity between the Old and New Testament, yeah. then you will have you, you actually have a harder time saying that wealth is a curse, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's not. And again, we're not wealthy like. In a way, all Americans are wealthy, but we're we're not like in what would America would consider. We just wealth, told you, you guys know? our van is falling yeah, apart. Our van is falling <laughs> apart. Our pets' heads are falling off. No, it's like okay. Moving on to yes. the next yeah. thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. this shows a little bit of my personality. There were a few people that wanted to know what sort of software we use. <laughs> and Lexi's asking the questions because I in the office. This is my domain. I manage. Money. Oh, actually, manage let's money. talk about that too, real quick, because somebody did say. Is there a biblical precedent set for a man or a woman being in charge of this? Um, I think so. When I think about the duties that God gives to men, I think the man has a duty of provision, primarily, where he goes out of the household or the the vocation that's an extension of the household is to bring money and resources in to provide. Again, First Timothy five eight, he provides for the members of his household. And I think the woman's duty is mainly to turn those resources into take money and turn it into food and turn it into clothing and nurture. However, Proverbs 31, that woman made money. She made economic contribution to the household. The housewife who doesn't have any dollars coming in is making economic contribution Correct. to the household. Huge, massively. Lots of people forget about that. Oh, like, have you tried hiring full-time nanny, cook? <laughs> daycare, like you'd spend $500,000 a year, laundry service. So they're both partnered in the economic activity. I think he has a primary duty, uh, and she has uh, a tertiary duty or like a, a helping duty that's related yeah. to his. Um, what was, was that answering your question? Yeah, that right? answers okay. my, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think if, if we think about typical female tendencies, a yeah. lot of the time women start to want to control in this way. Yes. And uh, not that, not that it has to be controlling in any sort of a way like that. I'm sure there's lots of women out there who help in that way and are not controlling. But yeah, totally. I'm just saying, if if that's a temptation you're falling into, maybe talk to your husband about it. That's a great um, I just okay. So software, I we, uh, you have always taken the lead in bill paying and all of that. Mm-hmm. I have had my domain over certain parts of the budget. That's right. Yeah. I feel like I have gone through lots of different seasons where I had like spreadsheets that I made for different stores, where I had different goals for savings, where I had different, this was designated for this, this is for this. And then I have other seasons where it's just, I don't know, you've been really good at reminding me like, don't, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but like when I start to get too anxious about paycheck to paycheck, and not in like the typical, we're literally down to the last penny. No, no. But more just like, I am really rigid with when I want to spend money. You mm-hmm. always remind me like, you don't have to worry about that. And that's been just really yeah. helpful for me through our whole marriage because mm-hmm. I've never felt, even times when I found out to help the church that you had not taken paychecks, I never knew about any of that. We and, were broke as a church. And yeah, I feel like you time. really protected me in that way because I've always felt, I've told you this and I'm serious. I've always felt like a queen. I've never felt like I've gone without whatever I wanted because I've been content with having my husband. That's encouraging. So, um, and because of that, it's really reflected the way I'm okay with being a little 
loosey-goosey with my end of the budget because I know you trust me. I know you're taking care of the important things and I know that you understand we have five kids. I can, when like school season comes around and it's time to buy school supplies and new shoes for five kids, I mean, that's easily several hundred, if not thousand dollars for all that. Well over a thousand. And I can start to feel really bad and just like the question crosses my mind of like who can just go without shoes. And that's just unacceptable. It's not possible with growing children. And so I think I'm just really grateful that you've been generous towards us and like, no, they need it. Go get it. You're never questioning like, was that excessive? Yeah. And I've, I have realized like part of this too comes from, again, our post-millennialism. I think we have a, a very fruitful Christian future ahead of us where there will be a lot of Christian culture that's built. And I understand that Christian culture takes Christians using their money and putting it in the hands of Christians. Mm -hmm. And that is more expensive. It just is more expensive to do that. But because of that, I also understand that my money now is to be taking care of my kids. Now Mm -hmm. the money is for the people, not the people for the money. And so I no longer, I mean, I still struggle with it sometimes when I'm like, shoot, now everyone needs snow clothes again. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> yeah. just a lot of money to drop often. And these are, this is just what I'm thinking through, like, mom, clothes. It's, it's something that is constantly on my mind because there's four seasons a year. There's five kids. There's your and my own, you know, physical clothing needs. But I just, that's something that I think, like, like you and I were chatting before this, we're not scared to spend money because we understand what we're building that's why the money was given to us. Like even this decision with the van, it was kind of like, we literally need to get our family around some way. That's right. Yeah. We can't <laughs> ride bicycles. Everywhere. Yeah. And and so many times, we, I mean, I've made mistakes in thinking about money and mo- most of the mistakes I think I've made have been thinking wrongly about some aspect of money and then correcting that thinking through a hard experience. Mm. And some of those things are, you know, things that I'll I'll still be correcting for the next decade, I think. One of them is like I now refuse to buy a crappy version of a thing mm. that is cheaper because it will save me 40% today, knowing that I will have to buy the same item again in one year instead of the first time buying the good version of the thing, the all metal, the no plastic. Worms? To, to buy that because I want to buy it once. For, it, it, this is called the, I mean, there's there's a name for it. It's like the boot fallacy or the shoemaker fallacy. Where, oh, really? Where, yeah, it's like, it's it's basically one of the ways that poor people think versus rich people think. Uh, and it's actually a trap. Hmm. It's a conundrum. It's like, you take a poor worker, he has to buy some work boots for this new job he got. Well, he can buy the $50 boots or he can buy $5 boots. He doesn't have $50, and so, of course, he buys the $5 boots. But guess what? He has to buy the $5 boots once a month or once every six months for the rest next 10 years. If he had been able to buy the $50 boots the first time, he actually would have, per day of wearing the boots, spent less. So this is actually a trap that you can fall into if you're very poor. I didn't know there was a name for it. Because you actually can't buy. Like, it's not that he just... And sometimes this is the reality. Like, when we were building our house... I couldn't buy the nicest thing the first time every day. I mean, I couldn't have afforded to. We, yeah, that wasn't the point of the house. Yeah, right. So I, you know, I'm not saying like buy the. You know what, guys? Don't get the Hyundai. Buy the Lamborghini. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but I'm saying like, am I going to buy the plastic, um, like plasticky kitchen item that Lexi needs? And be like, hey, babe, don't get the food processor that's going to Well, I can last. think of a real example. Yeah, what's a we good kept, example? <laughs> we kept buying those silly puffy jackets, like the winter yeah. coats. Oh, I don't know if they're popular they're everywhere, jackets. but in Utah, they're really popular because mm-hmm. super outdoorsy here. And the kids, literally one of the boys went through three of them in a winter. Yeah, and one winter. all because I did not want to spend the extra money on the Carhartts. And the Carhartt jacket, <laughs> which is like made for a boy. Yes. Uh, and they're gay now, Carhartt company, but whatever. You know, like yeah. the good, but that's a great But finally, example. a few years ago, I just caved in. I got all the boys' Carhartts, and I finally have winter coats to pass down. And look, Ira wore it on our backpacking trip this week, and he like completely abuses it and takes no care of it because he's seven. <laughs> You know, and a boy, they just don't have no regard for the durability of things. Okay, so let's train them. That, <laughs> let's but. get back to software, though. Oh yes. Do you use software? 
let me say something else before I answer the software question okay. that you made me think of because it was a really good point. Duties of a husband and a wife. Oh, yeah. And the pitfalls. Why, um, the husband, one of his duties is he needs to provide for his family. And, and one of the things that that means is that sometimes you will look at your budget and you will realize that you're asking your wife to do something that is impossible. Mm. Sometimes oh, yes. it will mean you're looking at men. Like you, yeah. I know we have men who listen to this show. Men, are you asking your wife to make bricks without straw like Egypt did to the, the, to the Israelite slaves? <laughs> are you asking her with a with $200 grocery budget yeah. a month to feed five kids and you and her? Guys, you can't do that. She, she Unless you've provided I her mean, a farm and a cow and right, you, all sorts of other things. You can't, it, it can't. I mean, and I say this, we made, I, I, I'm comfortable sharing this. When we were first married and up till we had three children in our home we never made more than thirty thousand dollars a year at that point like until we had i think four children was when we broke that thirty thousand dollar a year mark of income and part of that was actually bad part of that was that the church wasn't actually taking care of us well and it took pastor dan coming in Mm -hmm. and when when he he joined our pastoral staff and he was looking at our budget and, and dan was like you you can't do this to this family like you can't ask them he did for me what i'm saying husbands need to do for their wives he said basically to the elder team and i wasn't in the room he was like we, we have to pay brian more and um so so sometimes husbands have to reckon with and guys trust me i know this is hard Sometimes you have to look at the budget and be honest with yourself and say, I need to make more money. Okay, I have two things to say about this. Is there have been times where wives have asked me for advice, given me solid numbers, and I've had to tell them, like, sometimes the only solution really is more money. (laughs) And I think part of it, I kind of want to talk about this. I actually have this right here. Yeah. Men need to think outside the nine to five because the nine to five job is... Like, it's just like this modern thing Mm -hmm. that throughout most of history, men didn't get to just check out at five and have like all finances cared for for the rest of their lives and then passing on wealth a lot. And I'm not saying every single man has to do this. Don't don't hear me say that. But there are a lot of creative ways to make more money on the side. In addition, if you are a one-talent guy that is just really good at being faithful and sticking through his job, there's probably a lot of jobs out there that because you are such a hard worker and faithful, you could probably do simply because nobody else wants to do it. Yeah, I think if you're if you're hardworking, creative, and you work Christianly, you work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, then... And and you just some some guys I think are just fearful. They they're fearful of striking out or like losing the security. Yes. And they need to say they need to just say, like, look, I need to have a humble confidence yeah. that the Lord will provide. And I need to just make it a goal. Like literally write it down, say, and and it can start with something as vague as this. Like, okay, I know I'm not making enough money to provide for my family the way that I'd like to. So in the next six months, I am going to pray. I am going to think through and inventory my skills that I have and where I might where I could acquire skills that are marketable, not pipe dreams, not like I'm going to start a business that sells something that happens to be my favorite thing in the world, like lattes or something, and I'm going to bankrupt my family trying to do something stupid. But I mean, like, look at the world. Where are the needs? Where, where do people have actual needs? Can you meet that need? And will people pay you money to meet that need? I'm not saying everybody should start a business. Many people actually should work for somebody else yeah. with their disposition. Yeah. But if you just make it a goal, I am going to go out, and I'm, I'm talking to the men right now. And I'm also, I don't want the wives to use this, hearing me say this, as an excuse to belittle or um, no, no. Ta- you know, think less of their husbands. So don't just think I'm saying this is easy. Go tell your husband I, Brian said to make more money tomorrow. No, no, no. But I, I really am. I think the men need to hear this that sometimes the answer isn't, honey, can you find another way Correct. to coupon more? Correct. Or can you find a way to make like one mm. packet of Hormel French onion soup powder <laughs> feed like a Elijah and the widow and her son kind of situation? And I think this is really, oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts. I think this is really popular among ministry families too. Yeah. Like I remember a pastor's wife I knew that like she would tell me every item of clothing in which thrift store it came from. And I love thrifting. I wish I had more time to thrift. Yeah. But 
I just remember thinking when you became a pastor, like, am I going to have to tell people that? Yeah, like anytime you were wearing anything, be like, don't worry, I got it at Savers. It was on the floor. Okay. Someone had stepped on it. It smelled like urine. My husband doesn't make a lot. Like, don't wor- we're not idolizing money. The shoes oh, I'm wearing man. have gum inside of them. Pre-chewed. The okay, dog. I have something I want to say about this, though. On these slippers before I got them. You saying strong words to husbands... I have some strong words for wives, and it's that you need to be a little braver and more willing to let your husband take a risk. And and I mean it. When it says in 1 Peter 3 that wives are to fear nothing fearful, that includes your husband taking a business risk. That does not yeah. include, like, if your husband is putting, like, making it be all up to you, essentially. Right. That doesn't include that. But... Um, Andrew Crapuchetti's has a, I, I can't find it. I'm really sorry. And he, he's the CEO of Red Bloom. I recommend this lecture all the time and I, I can't find it. I haven't been able to for months. Listeners, help us find it. (laughs) Yeah. So it was Disputatio with New St. Andrews. I believe he was talking to a graduating class in 2019. Anyways, he was talking about how Christians should be the bravest business risk takers out there because we have grace to fall back on. Not because we're like, you can make a stupid decision and then God will still love you. But more (laughs) in the sense of like, if you actually believe God wants to see Christians build culture, if you actually believe he wants to build wealth among Christians so that they can leave an inheritance for their grandkids and they can pass that money on down. If he wants to use money to build the kingdom, then take a risk to build, to like get some of that money essentially. And that was so helpful for me because I listened to that while we were building this house and there were, you were finally starting to branch out. I mean, I literally, I've known you since you were 15. I've never known you to not work multiple jobs and I'm serious. Yeah, that's true. I'm serious. But you were branching out even more strategically, I think, in that time period. I was thinking more like, what am I actually good at? Yeah, so... And I had another friend that her husband was doing a similar thing and we were both scared in some ways. Like, what if he makes the wrong decision? And I just remember feeling so much freedom of like, but God's going to take care of us. He's trying to do something. He's being a man. He's taking dominion. He's trying to turn a profit for us because he loves us because he loves my grandkids. This, I don't need to be the one standing over him like, well, don't make a stupid decision, you know? So wives, let your husband take a risk and be kind to him about it. Yeah. Because who knows how the Lord might bless you through that. Help him find out what he's good at. Yes. You know what, honey, you're really good at this. Because some of the things that I had to figure out about what I'm actually good at were other people saying, you know, you're, you're good at this. You should like, again, pastor Dan with music stuff. And, and this is crazy to me. Some of my songs, my Spotify music I think tomorrow is going to pass a million downloads, a million streams on Spotify. And that's just Spotify. It's not counting Apple and YouTube and all these other ones. And the reason I can, with 100% confidence, say that the reason that that's going to pass a million tomorrow started with Dan, my my friend and and co-pastor, saying, like, hey, that song you set uh, for our church to sing, that's good. You should should do that more. It was like one sentence. And then I thought (laughs) about it for like a week, and I was like, Huh. And then I recorded three songs in a like a basement in an afternoon and put them on Spotify and I was like, well, no one's going to listen to these and, and and it's like did that make we're not making a million dollars off that by the way or anything. A million, they pay you like 0.0045 cents per stream or something, but that that was one little thing that I just had to have somebody else help me to realize, hey, you're you're decent at this. You should try it. And wives are in a key spot to be ride or die, to basically believe and respect their husbands. You can't nag him in a success. Men need confidence to succeed in these things. Like almost a yeah. kind of confidence that's kind of irrational. Yeah. Some, where you're like, no, I'm going to do this. Well, like, let, me, let me give you an example here because I, I, there, was a, there was a guy that – I saw this clip on Twitter recently, and I was talking to, to some guys about it today that was fascinating. It was like a light bulb for me. And it was some kind of show, and maybe you'll recognize it and you have a TV and you actually know like what this was. I just saw a, tw- a clip on Twitter. And it was basically this show that I think the premise was they took men who were millionaires, like who had started multi, multi-million dollar businesses, 
And they gave them like $1,500 in a broken down pickup truck. And they dropped them like in a city and they said, become a million, like build, the premise was build a million dollar business in six weeks. And it was just a two minute clip of one of these guys who clearly was competent. And he was kind of talking through his plan. He was driving this old rusty, it looked like our van. And he was driving this old pickup truck around some like Detroit looking area. And he was just talking through what his plan was. And the thing is, I don't know if he could do it in 45 days. Hearing that guy talk, I have no doubt that you could take everything he'd built away, but because he was the resource, the man was the resource, that man could go out and build a multi-million dollar business, and not everyone's like this, but he could do it in a year from nothing again, because he was the reason it worked, not luck or circum... People, like non-Christians, the socialist Marxist worldview wants you to think that all wealth is bad. It's a fixed pie of wealth. If you take $1, someone else doesn't get a dollar. That's not the world God made. God made a world where you cultivate the resources he made, and the pie gets bigger the more that you do productive vocational activity. And this literally correlates to wage slavery. Like it literally, socialism literally correlates to the way we look at going in, yeah. checking in on the time clock and getting out and getting our exchange of time for money. You're always selling your time for money. Yeah, that that's literally, and so when you can break outside that mindset, a good book that might be somewhat helpful for people in this is Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Who who wrote that book? Uh, Joseph Pieper. Oh, that's right. Leisure is the basis of culture. Yeah. He talks briefly in there. Like, it was so profound. I wish I had read it in a reading group because I would have got more out of it. But I just, it was so profound where he was talking about kind of the, the um, our view of time changed when we went from a patron society to a paycheck society, essentially. Mm-hmm. You were someone, you were literally someone else's slave. And you, we yeah. saw that through 2020 and 2021. Yeah you get the vaccine or you're gone. Right. You know, they don't care about you. Mm-hmm. You're their slave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, so many guys too could just be doing the same exact job, but working for themselves if they just started a business or something. I, but I, there was a, um, one of our friends at church, he's an engineer and he was telling me about a friend of his in engineering school who was not in his exact engineering discipline, but it was actually some crazy like astrophysics engineering or something. And the guy got like, eight years of schooling to get this highly technical degree. And during the course of the schooling, in order to pay his bills, he was like, well, I got to do something. And so he started a lawn care business. Mm -hmm. And my friend was like, yeah, when he graduated, he never did anything with his astrophysics degree because he was making $250,000 a year with his lawn care business. That's what I mean. You know, and people have come to you before for wanting business advice. You're like, this is what I want to do. And we're like, well, yeah, I, I mean, what about this? This would actually meet people's needs yeah. a little better. And they're like, oh, no, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And you're like, no. Usually the problem. This is going to meet people's needs. <laughs> usually the problem with a lot of men's business ideas is that it's something that exercises what they think is like their creativity. They're like, I'm going to do something highly creative and like beautiful and artistic. And it's like, you know what's really going to make money, though, is like, could you get in the porta potty business? <laughs> like renting out porta potties for events, or like th- uh, one of the one of the men I, in in my orbit that I think is probably uh, in the top three men I know at making money, and and uh, like and I I don't say that he loves money, but he's he's just really good at it. He's a business builder. W- one of my friends asked him the other day, like if you were starting a business from scratch today, what would you do? And like without hesitating, he said, I'd I'd mow lawns. I would start a lawn care business because he's noticed that there's this certain niche in our local, I don't know if this will work everywhere. He's like, I just noticed there's a certain niche of a, a type of property that there are many of in our area that based on his experience, because he has a type of property, he has a property that fits these characteristics. He can't get anybody to do the lawn care for it. And he can't do it himself because it's like five hours of work a week. And he was like, just realizing He's not going to start the business. He's already done his own businesses. He was like, look, some enterprising guy could buy an F-150, a used pickup truck, buy the nice lawnmower, get started himself, start hiring people, getting crews up, and pretty soon you look up from the work you've been doing for two or three years and you realize that you've built a business that is making six figures. I also want to kind of comment here too on like productive households, like Christians, men, don't feel bad about employing other people in your home. No. This is another thing that I've really changed my thinking on. Yeah. Like if Christian business men or even wives, I think of like Katie Luther, they definitely had paid help in that house. 
Yeah, you know? they did. Mm-hmm. They had paid help. They had a nanny that she was a single gal that believed in the Reformation enough. She knew she wasn't going to get married. She dedicated her life and her time yeah. to serving the Luthers. So you're talking about like how, even how can you create jobs for other people? How can you create wealth to create jobs for other people to make your household a place where people earn the money so they can feed their families? I, I just, I love that. Yeah. We, we do need to. When you get a Doug, to rip off Douglas Wilson, he always says like when the first settlers arrived in Idaho where he lives, there was a lot of work to do and no jobs. Like nobody was hiring. It was just fields. And, but there was a lot of work to do. And so mm-hmm. the, the the men who got to work and the women who got to work with their men and built things, they prospered. They were good. The people that just tried to live off of, you know, other people's work and they try to just laze about. It's like, no. And, and one more thing in this point, and then I'm going to answer your software question and then you take over. There's a lot here, guys. I know. And this is a big we enough topic. I just want to do a second episode on this one, by to be honest. Yeah, we, we probably will need to, because we also have a lot of questions from our patrons as well as from uh, listeners on Instagram and things like that. Proverbs twenty one seventeen says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. I think what Solomon is getting at there is that when you think about money and, and wealth and productivity, you need to be thinking about deploying resources to do things that God has given you to do. So like when I'm thinking about money as a man, I'm thinking about my duties again. I'm thinking, how can I make sure my wife has enough money to feed our kids? How can I make sure, like I've obviously failed with our van here. How, I tried. <laughs> Guys, I tried. I ordered it way ahead of time. I'm going to have to do something That was else. out of your control. <laughs> uh, yeah, sad about that. I'm thinking, how can I make sure that my my wife and children have reliable transportation? How can I make sure that they have a house to live in? Here's how, one. Homeschool. How can I make sure? Yeah, we're going to, a lot of people have asked us this question. When we got to homeschooling, when we were homeschooling before the school, before we started the school, I knew if I'm asking my wife to homeschool our children, I have to give her the $1,000 a year or whatever it is to buy curriculum. And I'm not going to tell my kids, I know it's your education, but daddy could only afford to get you like $5 worth of and I, I do think there are some really gifted teachers as moms out there who could probably homeschool for free. But that's sure. I just don't think that's the average mom. I'm not convinced. Oh, sure. Like because the, we've get, been given such a poor ed- education. Resources that are out there. Yeah, because you hear people totally. say like, oh, yeah, you could homeschool for free. And it can it, be it is true, yes. It can but. be done. But I also wasn't going to expect you to, to spend like a year of research to find all those things first, necessarily. You know, so I'm thinking about my duties. I'm not thinking literally this thought has has virtually never crossed my mind dan and i were talking about this the other day we were like have you ever thought about buying like a fancy car for yourself and it's like no not i mean not not really like i've looked at a truck and thought that's a cool truck i could do this with it or like it's still thinking about duties it's not like (laughs) you know what i'd really like i'd really like just a banger i don't know like a tesla plaid or something and go real fast uh, or like, man, if I just had so much money, I could buy like, I, don't, I can't even think of something. What? We've talked about this before. Like, what would we do if we had a bunch of money? We'd buy more books. We would just keep doing <laughs> more the things food. we're getting. We wouldn't use most like, or, or it would be like. Oxford's probably gay now, so I don't even want to go on vacation Actually, you know what? I do, I do know what I would do with, uh, we've you know me and a couple other men have built I know what you're going to say cuz this is what we always settle on an organization to basically be an umbrella corporation that owns a lot of the endeavors that we're doing in business and <laughs> we were a lot of the things I'd like to do I would like to to build out some resources that continue some of the work I'm already doing in worship and family worship but I would need to to hire several people to to make it happen cuz I'm out of time I can't keep doing it so if I had $100,000, I'd want to put it in that project. I thought you were going to say you wanted to be a city father. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, like uh, run for office. But anyway, that's beside the point. Whoever loves pleasure, when you're thinking about money and resources, you need to be thinking about the people you're serving because this is how you, es- you escape the snare of wealth. You think, what is this money supposed to be for? It's supposed to be for loving God and loving people because that's what the law is about. So if I can deploy my money to do that, then I, I will be safe from this thing. If I use it in a, in a craven way to serve myself, 
then of course I'm sinning with it, whether I have $20,000 a year or a million dollars a year. So um, to your question though, software, I have tried several. I've tried Mint, budgeting stuff. I've tried, I just, I don't. I use a, a spreadsheet to map our budget. I track things manually myself. And I use some TurboTax things to do my taxes because I have semi-complicated taxes as a pastor, which is a self-employed income situation. It's a weird category of income um, legally. And I also have some other you know, side, side things that are involve a lot of expenses plus some income. So it's like, like making music, for example, uh, in, involves a lot of expenses. And it also brings in several like small streams of income. So, you know, I, I don't. And actually, in the future, I'm going to get away from as much as possible using that stuff myself and actually use professionals because, to me, it's it's actually ending up being worth it to just actually go to somebody and even somebody I know. Like, we're using somebody in the church who is a professional in some business endeavors, and we're paying a little bit more than I would if I were managing it myself with all the software I could buy, but I'm employing that person in my church. So I know, oh, that's good. That money is going to someone I love. And it's, it's staying in the ecosystem and they're going to do a better job of it than I would. And it's going to take at some point you run into the problem that your time is worth more than the, the, uh, the 20% more money, you know? So you have to think through that calculation, time and money are absolutely related. And there comes a point where you have to realize that you will actually end up doing better financially by hiring someone who will do that thing you're not even very good at to begin with, better than you would. It's going to cost you more money. It's going to serve them. It's going to help Christian specialization in the vocational world in your community. And then you're going to be free to figure out the one or two things that you do that nobody else can do, that you absolutely are amazing at. Somebody asked, like they kind of just said, I have no idea what to do budget-wise. Like what are the basics essentially? And maybe this is the wrong term, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is we've always worked from a zero-sum budget, right? Is that is that what you would call it? Yeah, and it's a budget where you're trying to, before like you say I make, let's say you make $1,000 in a month, you want to end up budgeting every, assigning every dollar in that correct. thousand to do something. Yes. Even if it's like saving. Yes, I'm not going to yeah. spend it. So money. if you are listening and you feel like you don't even know where to begin, if it were me, I would take my $1,000 and I would break it up into different categories and I would maybe track it for a month or so to see what I'm actually spending in those categories yep. so you can make realistic, this is how I have actually made my budgets, so you can make more realistic, informed budget or like uh assign the right Mm -hmm. amount of money but this is also so you can see zero sum means you're not going into debt every single month right so if you're going into debt you need to be working backwards essentially to figure out what you're doing and you don't want to be in debt because scripture says debt is slavery yeah so you can be manipulated with your debt i mean really it's not it's not about all the software like if you can have the self-control to do that then you're already way ahead of lots of people who are using their credit cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, just really basics. Like we, we should probably wrap it up here and next time we can talk about investments or retirement yeah. and inheritance and so stuff like that. And Dave Ramsey. What do we think about Dave Ramsey? So we're, we're going to, yeah, we'll wrap it up here. And in the next episode, we'll talk about some Dave Ramsey related stuff, how we think through what he does well, where I think he lacks. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about a lot of, we've gotten, we did a call for questions. Um, on our Instagram and on our Patreon, and we'll be taking up a lot of them. Are very good, very granular. We've done a lot of like we've done a lot of practical in this episode, but we'll get even more practical in the next episode. And and le- and I'll point you as well to our Patreon channel again. Like like we even said in this episode, it costs us money to even do this podcast. I mean, we because of that time thing. For example, th- I'll just give you a behind the scenes Bright Hearth example what we want to be doing for this podcast spending our time on is actually making content that's good and helpful. We don't want to be spending time on editing sound and editing Cyril out of the background or Winnie out of the background. Actually, they're cute. We leave them in. Or like we forgot to turn the fan off in the room and it's really obnoxious. So we hire a guy in our church who's good at that. 
and it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. He gets to, uh, you know, have some income on the side, does a great job, better than I could do, mm-hmm. in less time than I would take to do it, and it's a win-win. So uh, one of the ways that if you enjoy this content, this is helpful to you, that you can help support the show, but also actually get a lot more content um, from us is to join our Patreon. Uh, there's a link in the description. It's like patreon.com slash pod or something like that. And on, on, on that channel, we do two things that we pretty much do nowhere else. We actually try to answer questions because we get messages and things, and we can't keep up with all the social media stuff. Just to be honest with time, Lexi can't spend her whole day answering questions on Instagram. I would be sad if she did that. We <laughs> we do, you know, because people are supporting on on Patreon. We think these are the people who are like, we, we can, we're going to listen to you. Like, we're actually supporting the show. We're going to take your advice and do this stuff. We try to answer questions there. Um, we, we do polls and things there for, like, what content we should be doing. We share recipes there, resource lists there. Um, we're making some curated, annotated bibliographies on different subjects that we will only release there on Patreon. Uh, and we also make a weekly show called In the Kitchen on Patreon, where we usually it's related to the main episode that we just recorded. We'll stop, we'll hit record again, and we'll talk just more freely and practically about some granular level stuff on each topic. Um, or we answer listener questions from Patreon there. Um, we do we do a bunch of resources. So there is right now the back catalog as we record this. There's already like 14 in the kitchen episodes. If you sign up today, there'll be 15 that you'll get to listen to all the back ones. And every week we put out a new one with the main show uh, called you know that in the kitchen podcast. Sign up there. We you know some of our tiers also get some cool like feed the patriarchy mug kind of situation. It's it's great. So sign up there. Help support the show. We really appreciate it. Share it with your friends. You know, if you think there are some people in your church that might be benefited, we'd appreciate it. Give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. You know, as the, what do the YouTubers say? Smash that like button. Hit subscribe. I'm just, I know. Lexi doesn't listen to any of that. All of the cheesy things that normally people would ask you to do, of course, we would ask you to do. But thank you for listening giving us your time today. We hope it's been helpful. We hope this season has been helpful and we look forward to continuing to walk through the rooms of the house in quest for the productive Christian household and the lost arts of domesticity. Um, Thanks for listening in. We'll see you next time on Bright Hearth.